Hey there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Gage, thank you for reading that passage for us. We have a, uh, a light text before us this evening, some light subject matter. Just kidding. Um, but hey, look, if you haven't had a chance to meet me yet, my name is Cole Griffith. Uh, I am the college minister here, and I am really grateful to be before you guys this evening. Tonight, we are going to be finishing our sermon series on Jesus' woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. And so if you've been with us at any length this semester, you know that we have been investigating and exploring these words that Jesus gives to us in this chapter, and they are hard words. They are harsh. They are not the lovey-dovey, easy sayings that we love to spend time with as we think about Jesus, but these are important words for us when we consider themes of God's justice and his righteousness and what that means for us as we seek to follow him and become kind and articulate Christians in our day and age. And so tonight we are concluding this series and we've been looking at this topic and this concept of how is it that religion comes to ruin? How is it that a good thing can go bad? Right? If you're anything like me, you'll go, well, actually, we do Kroger, uh, Kroger delivery now, right? So you, when you become an adult, you start caring about, like, grocery stores and, like, you develop your favorites, right? And so we do Kroger delivery now, and we always order way too much to where by the end of the week, I have groceries and vegetables and all these things that have gone bad, right? What is the source of rot in our world? How come a good thing so often goes bad? Why is it that our joys so often begin to sour? I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy. He says this, he says, the surest way of spoiling a pleasure is to start examining your satisfaction. The surest way of spoiling a pleasure is to start examining your satisfaction. And so why do we do this? Why do we take to task to begin to poke and to prod and to test out these enjoyments, these good things, these fun experiences that we have? What is underneath that desire to see how strong and sturdy a thing is? And I think the answer is we like to run our enjoyments through quality assurance tests to make sure that they're replicable. We want to break things down into their composite parts. We want to tinker and toy and get the variables just right so that we in our own strength can reproduce an enjoyment. Maybe to break this down for us, right? So let's say you uh, have a fun evening out with friends, right? You go to an amazing restaurant. You guys go back and you play, bust out the board games, right? Like it's an awesome time. And you're like, dude, that was like so fun. Let me... Let's do it again, right? Round two, right? So you invite the same crew of friends over. You go to the same restaurant. You tell the same stories. You play Catan for like the hundred millionth time. And hopefully you have close to that same level of enjoyment. Or think of it this way. Maybe you played sports in high school, right? And there's always, always, always that guy who after he graduates on Friday night, right, first year, after graduation, Friday night, shows up, jeans, his football jersey, right? It's the first home game, right? 
Or maybe after, for those of you guys who have graduated from college, right, you know there's always that group of people who want to relive the glory days, right? So they'll go rent out an Airbnb in your college town, right? You'll go, you know, do the things you used to do in college on game day, right? And you think to yourself, if I can just break down these composite parts, then I can remanufacture my own enjoyments. But there's two problems to these has-been behaviors, right? The first is that you'll never be able to fully replicate that fun, enjoyable thing, right? No matter how much you tinker, no matter how much you toy, no matter how much you you prod and poke, you're never going to be able to get it just right. And the second thing is that there's going to be this constant reminder of that failure. It's going to be the constant reminder that you'll never be able to reproduce something and let it live up to your expectations. The surest way of spoiling a joy is to start examining it. So to answer our question of how does a good thing go bad, the answer is a good thing goes bad when it becomes something for us to manufacture, something for us to control, to manipulate. When we get our hands all involved in it, it loses joy. And so you've been tracking with us. This is the exact context that we are in in Matthew 23. How does a good thing go bad? So look with me in verse 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is showing us in this text that Jerusalem has soured. This good thing, this beacon of hope, this city on a hill, this place of God's presence throughout the narrative and the story of the Old Testament, this high point in the story of the people of God has gone bad. It is completely rotted. So the question is, how does a good thing go bad? And I think Jesus gives us the answer. If you look with me back in 37, he says, again, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. See, Israel was not willing to be gathered. Israel was not willing to surrender her own pursuit of her own satisfaction. Israel was not willing to lay down her efforts to manufacture and build her own good on the promises that God gave to her. She was unwilling to be helped by God her help. And if you think about the narrative and the story of old, the Old Testament, Jesus here is echoing the words that we find in Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30, beginning in first, verse 15, Isaiah says this, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. We'll take matters into our own hands. Therefore, you shall flee away. And they say, we will ride upon swift steeds. We'll look to our own strength. Therefore, 
your pursuers, your enemies, shall be swift in their destruction of you. See, Israel's, if we could summarize the story of Israel in the Old Testament, it's simply this. Israel took matters into their own hands. God gave Israel all of these good and wonderful promises, and Israel said, great, I got this from here. Great, I can do this on my own. Thanks for the help, but we can take it from here. Israel's story is one of achieving God's good in their own strength of tinkering and prodding and poking and toying with these things so they can produce their own good. And so the Pharisees in Matthew 23 are the continuation of this story. They are next in line. And if you've been with us, you know we've talked a lot about the Pharisees. We've talked a lot about who they are and what they do and why Jesus has such a gripe with them. But if you could humor me for just one more time and give us a simple definition of what it is to be a Pharisee. To be a Pharisee is to do God's work for him. To be a Pharisee is to take it upon yourself to do what God is going to do in the world, but through your strength. To be a Pharisee is to achieve godly ends through human means. And the reality is, the end of this story always, always, always ends in violence. The end of this story always, always, always ends in violence. You might be thinking to yourself, like, that a little dramatic, right? Violence, right? I'm sure I've been a Pharisee at some points, but I have never, like, killed anybody, right? So, a little bit about me. So, I have two younger brothers. I'm the oldest of three. And me and one of my younger brothers growing up, right, we would play uh, Madden. Y'all know Madden, right? Like, football, video games, right? And, like, I'm, you know, Firstborn to a T, I'm a rule follower, right? I am like doing two runs on the first and they'll do a pass on short, like third and short, right? I am playing the game the way it is made to be played, right? I am following all the rules. My brother, on the other hand, right? He's, he, at the time he was shorter. He's like, you know, up here now. Uh, but at the time he was little. He had to get crafty, right? For him to stand a chance, he had to uh, flirt with bending the rules, right? I would call it cheating, but others would say just like competitive advantage, right? And he would do all sorts of like trickery, right? Like trick plays, like going for it on fourth down, right? Never, like not, not, like not playing the game the way it's, it's supposed to be played, right? And he would beat me every single time. <laughs> every single time, without a doubt, he would, he would beat me. And I remember one time in particular, I had had enough, right? So the clock struck zero, fourth quarter was ended. And before he could even look up, to smile and make fun of me, the controller was flying at his head, right? And I pounced on him and started just wailing on him the only way an older brother could. Pharisaism always, always, always leads to violence. I'm reminded of another story of two brothers that Jesus tells in Luke 15. You guys know the story. It's the uh, parable of the prodigal son. And you may be really familiar with this story, right? You have probably heard it told your whole life, but if we could just go back and look at it for a moment, I want us to consider which son is actually the one that's lost. See, it's the younger son who goes to his dad and is like, yo, pops, 
you're, good at, you're as good as dead to me anyway. It's like, let me just get my inheritance and like, peace, you'll never see me again. Right? It's the younger son who goes off into a foreign land, right? He, he wastes all of his money. He falls on hard times, right? He's down in the dumps. And it's the younger son who goes back to his father's house and says, look, I was an idiot and I don't even deserve to be here, but like, please take me back. I'll do whatever. But it's the older son who's the one that is lost, right? It's the older son who's unwilling to be reconciled to the younger. It's the older son who played the game the right way it was supposed to be played, right? It's the older son who followed all the rules, whose whole self-understanding was wrapped up in his rigid obedience to his place in his father's house. It's the older son who can't stomach the loss. It's the older son who refuses to be embarrassed. It's the older son who's unwilling to enter the party. Quite literally, the enjoyment and the fellowship of his father. He's unwilling to enter out of spite. He's unwilling to enter because he's unwilling to hear and heed the instruction of his father. He's unwilling to lose his place of privilege in the eyes of his father, one that he never really had. And so, like the older brother, the Pharisees are unwilling to accept their error out of spite. They and we are unwilling to give up the idea that our life is a result of our hard work or our efforts or even our devotion to God. But Jesus calls us to listen and to lose in order that we might enter into a deeper fellowship and deeper enjoyment with him. So that's where we're going tonight. Jesus gives us three easy divisions, three sections in which he's calling these Pharisees and us into a deeper enjoyment of himself and a deeper fellowship with the Father. So that's where we're moving. So look with me in verse 29. He begins this woe by saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, Cole Fryer, he's our coordinator here. He's awesome. He's actually sick tonight, so he can't be with, here, with us here tonight. But I'll brag on him while he's not in the room. But he did, preached an incredible message looking at the Pharisees' usage of uh, the cup to supply their indulgences in the tomb to show off their religious duty, right? And so here Jesus is connecting us back to verse 27, right? In that text, the Pharisees are whitewashed tombs. And if you remember from Cole's sermon, he, he went into great detail showing how they are very showy, right? All of the outside things look amazing. They are clean by their own metrics. They are so devoted by their own account. But inside, they're full of dead people's bones. Inside, they are un clean. 
So Jesus is continuing that thought here. And so what was a common practice around the religious festivals in the day of ancient Israel is that the Pharisees would go around to, they had the, the, the monuments, they had the grave sites, the tombs of these famous prophets, like, well, not Elijah, because, you know, he got, you know, the heaven thing, but like the other ones who actually died, right? And they would go and they would make this big show of their disgust and of their sadness and of their, their horror at what their ancestors, what their fathers have done, right? They are on the PR marketing tour, right? They're like up in Iowa, big, you know, overalls, like country hat on, like, all right, I'm one of you guys, right? Or, you know, this, you know, might hit a little close to home, but they're in MetLife Stadium in a private box watching their boyfriend play football, right? So they can sell tickets. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> they are... Uh, you know, down in the bayou, right, a football coach who all of a sudden becomes Cajun, right, to appeal to his players, right? They are on this PR marketing tour so that they can ascribe the name, image, and likeness of these dead heroes to their own clan and their own cause, right? They are on a tour to protect their brand. These guys are like one-sided co-signers, right? They've, they've forged their parents' signature on their, their rental agreement, right? They are uh, on this tour to make a big show of these guys are on our side. These guys are our guys, right? It's like using uh, someone as a reference without calling to ask them first. And these prophets, these monuments, these tombs are the perfect people to use as a reference, and the reason is they're dead, right? They, you can't call them to check because they're dead, right? You can ask them all you want if they are in support of this clan or this cause, but they won't answer. These prophets are the perfect selling points because they cannot speak for Themselves. We love a dead prophet because they no longer can talk back to us. And so these Pharisees can't know what these people would support. They can only imagine. They can only put themselves in their story. And that's why they say things like, if, they, if only we were alive in the time of our fathers, well, then we wouldn't have been partakers in killing and killing the prophets. If only we had been you know, around in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? We would like, like knock the fruit out of their hand and be like, stop, what are you doing? If only we had been alive in like, I don't know, the 1960s, right? When everything was really black and white and everything made a lot of sense and, and you could easily distinguish what was the right and wrong thing to do, right? We would have definitely done the freedom marches. We would have definitely marched with Dr. King. The question is, did you ask? Did you ask these people to use their name and their image and their likeness? See, it's really easy to win the game of hypotheticals. It's really easy to conjure up success in your head. It's really easy to imagine yourself in the game. Last second, right, you throw the shot up and you hit the game winner, but it's very different to be in reality. And this is what the prophets beg us to consider. They ask us, what makes you so sure? What makes you so sure of yourself that you would make the choices that you claim 
to make? What makes you so sure that you know what you would do given the same circumstances as somebody else? See, these prophets, right, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of these guys endured extreme suffering. All of these guys were uh, persecuted, right? So they wanted to cut their heads off. They wanted to silence them because they were tired of hearing what they had to say. And a prophet has two major duties. The first is they point to reality beyond what is presently seen. They point to the truer reality of God's perfect world, of God's creation made right. They expose the errors and the evils of the systems that they live in, and they apply God's word in so, so that there might be a new order based on God's ideal vision for the world. And not only do they do that, but implicit in this first point is they do a second thing. They expose our desire. They expose our response to God's word, to God's truth, right? Why are you so defensive? Is it because you are protecting your benefits? Or why are you so angry? Is it because you feel threatened that your good might come to an end? The prophets unveil us. They expose us. They dress us down, and we are left with nothing to hide in. So if you've been with us at any length or any point this semester, you know that there's a lot of things that we can hide from God in. We spent some time the very first week talking about how we can hide from God in our dedicated service to him. We can show up to every single program that the church offers, but still be far from God. You can actually hide from this stage. I could be hiding from God right now. I hope I'm not, right? You can hide in your own leadership. You can hide in your dedicated service of others. You can hide in me. You can like let me inform the way you think about God. You can let me be the one that dictates your relationship to God, but that is a way that we hide. Just like Adam, we are prone to bury ourselves in fig leaves. We want to cover ourselves up and hide our motives. Just like Cain, right, who goes and builds a city to hide himself from his guilt that is seeking to find him out. He hides in these walls that he's constructed for himself. And just like Jerusalem, we plug our ears and we kill the prophets in order to hide from God. And the prophets and Jesus forces us out of our fig leaves. So the question is, how do they respond? How do you respond? What does the Pharisees, how does he reveal and expose the Pharisees? And if you look in verse 31, he addresses just this. Verse 31 Thus you witness against yourselves. that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus exposes the motives of the Pharisees and he reveals their desire. And they, what they've done is they've actually, they've said too much. 
they've, they've hoped that this excuse, right, they've hoped that this imaginary hypothetical situation they've placed themselves in will exonerate them from the guilt and the actions that their fathers committed. But what they accidentally do is implicate themselves, right? They've said too much. They said, look, we, we're smarter than our fathers, we're, we're, we're holier than them. We know more. We have access to more information. We have a higher standard of conduct. We're more sophisticated. We just know more and we know better. So, of course, we wouldn't make the same mistakes that they make. And what Jesus says to them is really, really interesting. He's like, you said it. They are your fathers. You have implicated yourself in their guilt. And so this brings us to a very, I think it's a very relevant and modern question. And the question goes like this. It's, it's how is it, how does it make any sense? How is it fair? How is it just? How is it right that these sons, these individuals should be held accountable, should be held guilty for the actions of their ancestors lived generations before them? How is it right? How is it fair? I mean, these guys have not actually killed anybody themselves. So how is it fair that they be implicated in this guilt? How is it, how is it right? Is guilt something that we can inherit? Is debt something that follows through our family tree? Is is Guilt earned or is it given? Are we subject to the wickedness of those who come before us or are we just morally weak to not make better choices? Does our DNA determine our destiny or do we have any choice in the matter? Maybe we can, we can put it this way. Imagine, right, like imagine in a family, right, there's a guy who uh, has some genetic tendency toward addiction, Let's imagine in our, our fake little family, right, he's got this genetic tendency toward addiction, and that addiction causes him to bring all sorts of harm on those closest to him, just like his father did to him, just like his father did to him. So the question is, well, who's to blame? Is it the individual who's making conscious choices to harm somebody else, or is it the manner in which this person exists? Is it his condition, right? Is it his, his makeup, right? Where is the blame? What's the right place? How should we deal with this situation? What is just in this situation? And I think in our day and age, on one side, you, wanna, you, have, you have one side of people who say, well, look, this guy, obviously he's a terrible person. He's horrible. He's evil. He should pay for the evils that he's done. And you have another group of people who will say, no, 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 like he's, he's bound and determined and should not be held accountable because of his condition, because of his genetic tendency of the, of the thing that he has no control over. Do you feel that tension? Do you see that tension? C.S. Lewis, again, in, in his book, Mere Christianity, he, he speaks to this very issue and he says this. He says, most of man's psychological makeup is probably due to his body. When his body dies, all that will fall off of him. And the real central man, the thing that chose, that made the best or the worst out of his material, will stand naked. 
and all sorts of nice things which we thought our own, but which were really due to a good digestion will fall off some of us. And all sorts of nasty things which were due to complexes or bad health will fall off others. We shall then, for the first time, see everyone as he really was. And there will be surprises. There will be surprises. From our parents and our DNA and our genetic composition, we inherit all sorts of crud. We inherit all sorts of tendencies. We inherit all sorts of things that make our life complicated. But with that, we also inherit a set of ideas, a self-understanding, our idea of our place in the world that is based on the way that we're treated, which is based on the way that others have been treated, which is based on the way that others have been treated. And so the question is, what is justice? What, who is to blame? And I think what Jesus does here is he, he illustrates that behind the cycle, behind the repetitiveness, behind the tendency of generations, stands another figure, stands the real culprit. And he names this culprit in verse 33. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. See, running through the course of human history is a serpent, is the deceiver. He is the through line to our DNA. And he runs so strongly through us that we are indistinguishable from him. He runs so strongly through our families, through the people around us, that we look just like him, and we unfortunately and ultimately make the same choices that we have been acted on with. But Jesus here is unveiling the real culprit. See, just like Cain in Genesis 4, right, who inherited a body with genetic tendencies, who inherited a set of ideas about himself and his place in the world from his parents, right, he had, what, a wild beast who stood at the door of his heart, and his desire was to have him. His desire was to consume him. His desire was to animate him toward violence, to move him toward destruction. See, sin is that animating force of violence behind all of our motive to self-survival. Sin is the instinct within us that moves us, that, tell us, that tells us to get the things that we want at the expense of whoever we want. And this begins all the way back. Jesus tells us in John 8, verse 44, this begins all the way back with our father, the serpent, who was murdering from the beginning, whose idea of deception led to a death. We are little baby snakes. That's the image in the Greek. We are little baby snakes. But one day, we'll be full grown. One day, we'll begin to develop fangs of our own. One day, we'll begin to have the poison glands fill up. One day, we'll leave the coop and we'll slither off into some other place to bring harm and destruction of our own. See, eventually, flinging a controller at your brother's head 
out of anger, turns into murder. Eventually, fleeting lusts of the eyes turns into adultery that destroys and breaks relationships. See, ultimately and eventually, getting even with somebody turns into full-scale genocide, as history has shown us over and over again. And eventually, God will put an end to us, and he will put an end to our violence. How will we escape God's judgment? Jesus actually answers his own question here. If you look in verse 34, he says, Therefore, on account of this, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation." Jesus answers his question, how will we escape judgment? He gives us an answer. I'll send you people. I'll send you prophets. I'll send you wise men. I'll send you scribes. And these people will bear a different type of message. They'll say, you must be born again. If you want to save your life, you got to lose it. You got to lay it down. Your will and your desire to self-survival and promoting and manufacturing your own good, you have to lay that down. And what is their response? Well, now the hypothetical becomes a reality. You wanted to imagine yourself in a world where you were in the time and the day and the age of the prophets. Well, now the time is here. The hour has come. And what is their response reveal to us, it reveals that they are complicit in the violence they've inherited. They are complicit in the guilt that was with them all along. They have gone from baby snake to full-grown viper. The blood is the proof. And we know how the end of this story goes. Jesus is forecasting into the future, but we have the rest of the story. We know that in Acts chapter, chapter 7, Stephen himself was stoned. We know that in Acts 14, Paul was chased from town to town, from city to city, being persecuted and suffered himself. We know that Christ, the prophet who stands before them, speaking to them, they will, this couple chapters over, themselves hang on a cross to die. The ground cries out. It keeps the score of their guilt and it proves that they have become complicit in this thing that they have inherited. See, they were unwilling to listen to the word of God himself who stands before them and cries out to them, repent. They were unwilling to lose their status as God's favorite ones. They were unwilling to lay down their effort. They were unwilling to lose, to be to lay down their place as the older brother, and all the while the pimps and the prostitutes enter the kingdom of God before them. The younger brother has won. They were so committed to building a life, they ended up losing it. And ultimately, Pharisaism leads to violence. And so as we are winding down, 
and we are coming to a place of reflection and asking God what he can reveal to us, I have the, the, the question I want to end us with is, what, is what, what type of son will you be? What type of brother will you be? Will you be a son of the serpent? Will you be like the older brother who is unwilling to enter into the enjoyment and the fellowship of the father? Will you be like Cain who is interested in his own uh, place and position before God that he takes it out on Abel? Will you try to save yourself by your works? Will you try to earn and manufacture your own good, poke and prod at it to reproduce it for yourself? Or you be a son of God. You be like the younger brother who is willing to go back into his father's house. Will you be a peacemaker, one who is willing to purchase peace even if it comes with personal cost to you? Will you be like Abel the righteous? But the truth is, you don't really have a choice. The truth is, we are all Cain. We are all the older brother. We all stand as an inheritor of a terrible set of traits. We all have a tainted DNA. We're all cursed and bound to sin. We are all, our will is bound. None of us are free. We are slaves to the serpent and kin to it, but Christ the Son of God, who in the power of the Holy Spirit, he's the one who came to proclaim freedom to the captives. He is the one who came to provide recovery of sight to the blind. He is the one who has come to proclaim freedom for those who are oppressed by sin. And so when we enter into his kingdom, the Son of God, the righteous one who shed his innocent blood for us, his blood that speaks a better word than Abel's, in order to make peace between us and the Father, so that we might be called sons of God when we are joined to him, when we finally let go our will to make our life what we want it to be, at the expense of whoever, when we lay down our life then and only then, are we empowered and free to find it again in him. In Christ alone, we are free. So as we enter into this time of 120 seconds, that's the question. Will you live? Will you try to make your life and purchase your good and manufacture your enjoyment on your own? Or will you die? Will you lay down your life and find it again in Christ? God give us grace to reflect on just this. Thanks for listening to the Oxano Podcast. If you're interested in the songs that we sing, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. We'll see you next week.